up an old road to Laymore Freeway, a few miles south of Las Vegas. May 2nd, 8.15 p.m., airline stewardess Elena Munoz missed the detour sign and blew a steel-belted radial on a jagged rock. She cursed the power of advertising. She had no idea how cursed her evening really was. That was the voice of reporter Carl Kolchak in the case known as The Vampire, original air date October 4th, 1974, written by David Chase from a story by Bill Stratton and directed by Don Weiss. This is one of the original Kolchak adventures and kind of going back to the very first Kolchak adventure. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me, of course, is Mr. Chris Statue. Well, hi there, Mike. What did you think of The Vampire, Chris? Uh, so we talked a little bit on the Kolchak tapes about how there doesn't seem to be any mythology or reason why Kolchak is being disturbed by these monsters. And we'll talk about it more on the next episode, The Werewolf, which really does a poor job of setting that up. This episode, though, it revisits the Scorzini character from the Night Stalker movie. And it revisits. Kinda. Well, I mean, the character's kind of, I don't know, the darkness of that character is present in this episode because it, we're led to believe the female vampire in this episode is a product of Scorzini. Which, again, for this show, that's a little surprising because we haven't had something like that on this show up until this point, where something returns. That being said, I thought this episode was pretty good. There was a lot of really good character development. There was some good, I won't say action, but the monster was in full force. You got to see the monster doing its thing, and Kolshak was in fine form in this episode. It, it kind of kept a lot of the character interactions between him and the usual suspects, Greenwich, Vincenzo, two kind of a, a minimum, which I'm not a huge fan of because he works best when he's playing off of those characters as opposed to the, the one-off characters of the week. But outside of that, I thought it was a, one of the stronger episodes of the show that we've seen so far. What about you? Yeah, I liked it quite a bit. I'm glad that he was able to get away from Chicago for a little while, though to your point, it is nice when he interacts with uh, Vincenzo and, and uh, Ron Updike in person. But he gets a little bit of that at the beginning. I like the way that he kind of uses reverse psychology to get himself sent out on this assignment. Updike picks up on that in that scene. He's like, he's, do you see what he's doing? And he's right. And then he's like trying to pretend like that's not the case. Yeah. Yeah. The way that he just is like throwing out these books. And sometimes I wonder if those are actual real books that he's even throwing out or if he just as making everything up whole cloth. Carl. Oh, no, not me, Tony. No, no, no. I'm, I'm ended up to my eyeballs right here. Carl, do you mind if I make the decisions on the utilization of manpower around here? Whatever you say, Tony. I have read a few articles on transcendental meditation, and um, I feel I could handle the story pretty well. <clears throat> uh... What, uh, what books you read, uh, Ron? The uh, Murty book, the uh, Harrison Lopato work, the uh, A Sense of Self by Sidney Obandi? Uh, just the Murty book. And some articles. I don't know the others. Uh-huh. Well, the Murty book is fine, Tony. It's just fine. It'll give him enough information and knowledge to write the story. It's superficial, but enough. Carl, I want you to go. Mr. Vincenzo, don't you see what... Uh, no. Now, wait a minute, Tony. There is no time to discuss it. According to this, the interview's already been set up with a murder mirror, and I want you on that plane today. Not me. I'm not going out, and that's that. You are going out to Los Angeles. You're going to give the story your best efforts, and you're going to keep me posted while you're out there. Tony, that is it, Carl! And it gives us kind of a good comic foil in uh, the real estate agent and former <laughs> purple prose journalist... <laughs> 
uh, once he finally gets out to uh, Los Angeles. And I had to keep reminding myself, being more of the Midwest, uh, I had to keep saying, okay, Las Vegas is very close to Los Angeles. So this makes sense that we start in Las Vegas and the action quickly moves into Los Angeles. So there wasn't that, well, why is this so far away? But no, it's actually pretty darn close. Yeah, no, the distance between the two cities, I think, is like an hour and a half, maybe more, maybe like three hours, actually. So it's not that far, but, you know, Kolshak seems to get around, if that makes sense. Outside of some of the kind of the usual issues I have with the show, I really liked it. He also had a good police officer to play off of, and people my age will recognize him as Mr. Feeney from Boy Meets World, though, like... But, I mean, that's what I recognize him from. and Or, I guess, more aptly, Kit from Knight Rider. Oh, my God. Yeah, I forgot that he played Kit's voice. I tend to think of him as uh, Dr. Mark Craig uh, from St. Elsewhere, and then he also had a good role in The Graduate. Isn't St. Elsewhere is the one where it turns out it's all in the kid's head at the end, right? Yeah, you know, I never watched that final episode, and I think I kind of was better off for it. Well, I think you are, because then I'm pretty sure, like, there's a whole... There were characters on that show that were then in other shows, so all these shows together are in some child's mind, including, I want to say, The X-Files is part of that. There's, like, a whole Wikipedia page about, like, the universe that is contained within that child's mind you know whatever because apparently people don't give a shit about the way shows end so just have it end on some insane non sequitur so yeah but yeah i i recognize i recognize william daniels uh one of the most just like blandest named actors in the history of acting i recognize him as kit from knight rider and he he plays a pretty good foil to carl kolshak one of the reasons i went into police work is because i thought i'd meet all kinds of people you know interesting people that's the truth. But you're not interesting. You're just idiotic. Yeah, he's pretty great. I, I've tried to get an interview with him. Unfortunately, that didn't work out. I want to say he might be writing his memoirs right now. And it's one of those things like when you write your memoirs, I'm not going to do anything until the book's out. And then maybe I'll do some interviews after it. But when people are writing, they tend to just like no interviews, no interviews. So, because I want to talk to him about the parallax view, he's also in that, and that's one of my favorite thrillers. We always talk about how Kolshak doesn't have a police officer or an authority figure to play off of constantly. It's always like a rotating bag of people. In this episode, it's him. In the next episode, it's someone else. And I think, for me, William Daniels is the strongest cast one that we've had up until this point. He's also given a lot more screen time than most of them. Well, it's very surprising when Carl goes into the one apartment and Daniels is there. It's like, whoa, I didn't expect this. But then I like how Carl kind of turns it around and is just like, you don't know what the hell's going on. If you did, you wouldn't be here looking at this stuff basically the same way that I am is what he's saying. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, he, he really turns it around on him there in that scene, which is it's a really it's one of the better scenes in the entire episode. And it's kind of nice. We get a little cameo from Larry Storch at the beginning who kind of sets the whole thing up and Storch surprisingly not over hamming everything in that scene. I mean, he, he kind of owns the scene as the Swede, but, uh, and I also like that, uh, interaction that he and Ron and Carl are all having at the beginning there, how Ron wants to get into television broadcasting, and uh, is trying to pump the Swede for more information. 
Meanwhile, Carl just keeps, you know, telling them to buzz off because he wants to know more about this uh, series of unexplained murders where there's a large quantity quantity of blood missing yeah and it just happens to be another vampire just happens to be yeah it just happens to be a vampire hooker nonetheless she kills is it her sister that she comes back and kills i think so i read the script for this and there's a there's a moment in the script where a character named ichabod grace who's played in the actual episode by jan murray a very very caucasian gentleman but in the script reading ichabod grace's description and with the name ichabod grace i was kind of under the impression that he was a black guy so i thought for sure we we're going to get <gasps> imagine that another african-american character inside of a Kolchak episode and unfortunately that wasn't the case though i have to say that this guy this jan murray actor though he does a great job probably the most unlikely pimp i've ever seen in my life because the guy's got to be what 50 60 years old white hair very distinguished but he just swoops in on (laughs) this this uh vampire and was like adding her to his stable right then and there it's like come on baby i uh i'm offended by how racist you are mike you were expecting a black man as a pimp i get that a lot yeah right so I've heard. <laughs> yeah, it was a little surprising. It kind of doesn't make a whole lot of sense when you think about some of the other characters we've had in the show that have been pimps. I mean, I guess he's like a Las Vegas pimp. He's like an old white guy. Equal opportunity employer, I suppose. Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah. The reason Kolshak is sent to Los Angeles is to interview uh, like a yogi. Yeah, a guru of some sort. Yes. Yeah. And then that scene was just bizarre with between him and the the yogi yeah where it's like you didn't show up so you're gonna have to get used to being disappointed you will never be able to speak to this guy ever because he's already gone yeah yeah i'm sure kolshak really cared yeah <laughs> right but then he manages to talk to the real estate agent who happens to be a former journalist and she says and he comes up with the idea of Hey, how about you write the story and I'll proof your work. Put my byline on it. Here we go. 1970s uh, feminism. Where are you? I'll put my byline on it and then we'll get you out there. And then eventually we'll get you a role on the paper. How about that, honey? <laughs> Kolshek is a prick. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we've seen it at this point that Kolshek is uh, not the most forward-thinking character. Not the most progressive character on television. So at least he didn't call her a dumb broad. That's true. And she is uh, being played by Kathleen Nolan. The character's name is, what is it, Faye Krueger. I, I thought they kept saying Freddy Krueger every time she's on screen. <laughs> I mean, come on. It's pretty close. If you say... If you, If you say it fast enough, it sounds like it. True. She has been in a ton of stuff over the years. So as I'm here, like she's got a really distinctive voice. So when I was hearing her voice, I was like, I know I've heard her before. I can't exactly place it. And then looking through her filmography, I'm like, okay, I know I've seen some of these shows that she was in, but like she was in the real McCoys for a long time as Kate McCoy. And that one was just a little bit before my time, so I never caught that one. 
One of the problems I have with this show is that female characters that play off of Shack are never written very well. They're not no. very deep characters. And she doesn't break the mold, let's put it that way. Yeah, she's not particularly bright. Yeah, no. I mean, to the point where she lets Shack exploit her, I guess. Yeah. And then the whole weird moment where there's a little bit more of this in the script, too, when he asks her for her lipstick as he's sending her out of the room. And there's this implication that Carl is a (laughs) cross-dresser. But that doesn't necessarily come out in the episode too strongly, I don't think. I didn't even pick up on that. Yeah. But he's taking the lipstick so he can make a big cross on the back of the door. I guess he didn't have any markers or anything available. So makes a big old cross on the back. And then we have kind of – it kind of reminded me of the masseuse uh, – uh, incident. What was that? The was it in the Night Strangler when he goes in to get yeah. the massage and he wants to set up the camera because he knows that somebody's going to come in and try to kill her. Yeah, it was that one. Yeah, yeah. You know the the scene the scene that I enjoyed the most in this episode was the scene where he he's not really fighting the vampire, but the police are fighting the vampire and then the police officers are getting thrown full sail through windows uh and kolshak's just like sitting there like oh like ducking under them <laughs> like, right so just kind of like lackadaisically he's just like yeah whatever he just like ducks under them and then there just happens to be some pieces of metal that he can turn into a cross right yeah that was my favorite scene because it, it again this show sometimes it it follows like a formula it doesn't even like follow formula. It does follow formula. And when it kind of changes the formula a little bit, like this episode did, I, I kind of like it because we don't always get to see the monsters in like broad daylight. Right. We actually have very rarely gotten to see them in broad daylight. So, And she's pretty scary. I have no, to say that. She's just like Scorzini. Oh, yeah. And I like yeah. how the other prostitute's like, yeah, she puts on a pound of makeup. She's fucking dead. Yeah. Because she's been dead for three years, we find out at the end of the episode. Again, nice continuity that they're keeping. Yeah, exactly. Now, that scene with the police that you were talking about, was that around the time that she took out the football team? The pimp, Ichabod Crane, or sorry, Ichabod Grace, is sending is supposed to send the vampire over to Carl's place, but he ends up sending her to this football player's place. And then he sends this other girl over to Kolchak, and that's when he tries to, like, <laughs> doesn't try to stake her, but he has the, the cross and everything, and she's yeah. just like, what kind of kinky scene is this? And then, yeah, the uh, the vampire goes over to this football player's place and takes him out and, like, the whole, I don't know, first string or whatever you call it. And I think that's when the cops show up. Yeah, that must be. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I just, I, I guess I didn't catch the football player part. It was very, just, it was in his voiceover. And gotcha. they didn't really spend a whole lot of time with these guys. I kind of wish they had a little bit more. And they didn't necessarily spend a whole lot of time with those warlocks that they called them either. Though I like how, you know, it's 19, what, 74. So we're not quite into the satanic panic at the moment, but, you know, it's okay to uh, start pinning crimes on uh, Satanists and, uh, you know, uh, um, anyone in, into Wicca and stuff like that. When in doubt, Satanists. Oh, yeah, exactly. When, yeah, when in doubt, Satanists. 
the the whole idea behind her being a progeny of Scorzeny, you know, one of his quote-unquote vampiric children because she was turned into a vampire by him. I mean, they did a really good job of reinforcing that with the way that she was interacting with Kolshek. I mean, she did exactly what Scorzeny did. She didn't talk at all. All she did was hiss, just like he did. Which, again, and she had the super strength, which I really liked. I liked... That there was some consistency in the, I don't know, the rules, the mythology that was set down in the show. Because this is probably, I'm assuming this is the only time that we ever have a, have a reoccurring monster in the show. I think you're right. I mean, we'll have to see as we go through, but I, I don't think that that werewolf's going to come out of the ocean anytime soon and go after Carl. Oh, God. <laughs> So why don't we go ahead, take a break, and we're going to play an interview with the producer of Cole Shack, Cy Shermack. And we'll be back with that after these brief messages. Well, Eric, would you say that we're just two dudes who love talking about movies over at the Culture Cast? I mean, yeah, I don't know if dudes is the correct nomenclature, though. <laughs> dudes, bros. Okay, what about movie nerds? No, okay, uh, dudes is fine. Not nerds. Anything but movie nerds. Well, over here at the Culture Cast, we talk about new movies, overlooked gems, classics, and some films that cause us to question our sanity twice a week. Yeah, Hot to Trot comes to mind for sure. Yeah, Hot to Trot was a real mess. So make sure to check out the Culture Cast on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and wherever you get your podcasts. Attention, attention. Are you a fan of MASH, one of the most groundbreaking television series in history? Then take a listen to the MASH 4077 podcast, where hosts Kenny, Simon, and Al discuss their thoughts episode by episode. They will also share with you some little-known behind-the-scenes information, trivia, and so much more. So come and find them on iTunes by searching MASH 4077 podcast or online at www.mash4077podcast.com. How to continue a television series after a major actor has left the cast. Part 2. The Blake 7 Method. Remove the character from the scripts. Introduce a new replacement character. Eventually, few of the original characters will be present, and the series will barely resemble its original form. For more about British science fiction television, listen to the British Invaders podcast. www.britishinvaders.com How did you decide to get into show business? Well, I'm not really sure whether I ever decided to get into show business. I, I think I kind of drifted into it. And as I think about it, it wasn't really a conscious decision. It sort of just grew and probably started when I was a kid. And on rainy days in Brooklyn, we were in one finished basement or another playing cops and robbers or cowboys and Indians. And I was always the, the stuntman who could get shot and take the fall. And even at 10 or 12, I remember getting my lessons on how a man behaves like a, a man from the movies. And we all got our cynicism from Bogart. Uh, you know, we'll always have Paris uh, or our humanity from John Garfield, who said, what are you going to do? Kill me. Everybody dies. 
And of course, the devil may care heroism in the face of insurmountable odds, like Cary Grant in uh, in Gunga Dean marching into a room full of tugs and saying, well, now you're all under arrest. Then it was my sister who wanted to become an actress and instead became a world famous antique jeweler. And she took me to her high school, which ultimately became my high school, where I saw a play called Cyrano de Bergerac, the title role being played by a young man who became a famous comedian, Jack Carter. And Jack played Cyrano with what I describe in the book as a grotesque Jimmy Durante accent. But I was smitten by the play and the character. And so when the time came for me to be graduated from high school and choose a college, I opted for Ithaca College that offered courses in only three disciplines, music, drama, and physical education. Uh, and then somewhere around my first year in college, I became ill and I had to drop out. And instead of going back to school, I became an apprentice in a summer stock uh, company. And then the next year, I became a resident in the summer stock company. And then I was an actor. You went from acting to writing fairly fast in your career. Is that right? Yeah, pretty early in my career. I uh, I wasn't crazy about the way uh, actors would treat it. And I thought maybe writers would be treated a little better. And I was wrong about that. And my wife was a magazine writer. And I had appeared in so many television shows that I had the scripts and we sort of learned the formula and decided to write something together. That's how I became a writer. One of your early writing credits after writing a few episodes of television was doing the screenplay for 4D Man. How did you get involved with that? The beginning of my life as a rewrite man. When I'm feeling wildly narcissistic, a play doctor. I used a, a, I'm using now a three sheet poster of that film as my computer wallpaper. I don't know why I'm not crazy about the movie. It was really the, the first thing I did. There was a, a producer by the name of Jack H. Harris. And somehow or other, whether my agent put us together or, or what, I don't, re I don't recall. And by the way, this might be the first time in our interview that you hear me say I don't remember, but it's only the first time I say that a lot. And he put me together with the director, a guy by the name of Shorty Yeworth, and uh, he had a script that he wasn't crazy about. Why, why should that be different from all other nights, you know? And, uh, so he asked me if I would rewrite it, and of course, it was the first thing I'd ever done, and uh, I said yes. And my wife and I went out to meet Shorty and his family in a, in a compound in Pennsylvania, I believe, and uh, we discussed it. They gave me the copy of the script they had. And much like a story that I tell about Harry Cohn and a writer by the name of Frank Fenton, uh, in the book, uh, I read the script. I didn't like it. I threw it away and wrote a different script. You obviously had a, some pretty big hits when you finally became a, a producer, which you, you stuck to producing for a, a, a long darn time. And I would say that that is primarily what you're known for. One of your early hits was Ironside. 
And I've heard stories of people going to great lengths to accommodate Raymond Burr and his love of the teleprompter. Do you have any memories of particular uh, challenges when it came to his use of the teleprompter? No, uh, uh, Mike, I, I don't think that there were any challenges. He was just so expert at using the, the teleprompter. Um, he was smarter than the teleprompter men. He made placements himself, and the sight lines were always correct. Uh, it was shooting outdoors that was a major problem. He, he told us, whether it was true or not, uh, that he had very sensitive eyes. He didn't like to be pointed into the sun. And uh, that became a problem because we shot a lot of stuff outdoors. If we didn't do that, it would look as if we were shooting in a closet. But the teleprompter, he was a genius at much like Barack Obama and uh, was. Uh, and you can tell the difference when someone like Donald Trump is using a teleprompter and it's not set properly and he squints his eyes and you know he's reading. Raymond Burr was always great at it, so there was no point in complaining about it or making a big deal about it. He He used it very well, and uh, the only people that knew about it were the people on the set. This interview is for a podcast dedicated to The Night Stalker, and I know your experience on the show wasn't the most pleasant, but where was the show at when you came to produce it? Had it even started to air yet? Uh, no, it hadn't started to air yet. I don't remember how many, but we had... I'm not sure whether we had any in the can at all, Mike. I mean, you might have to do a little research on that. I know we had four or five scripts. Um, thinking about it, I believe that we were shooting because I recall that the first action that I had to take when I took over the show was to shut the company down. Uh, whether I shut them down because we were in preparation and we were about to go on the stage, can't be sure. I think we might have had three or four in the can. And uh, yeah, there was a problem on the set. There was a problem between uh, Darren McGavin and, uh, and the current producer at the time, a very nice gentleman by the name of Paul Platon, who was being uh, abused by, by his star. And... Uh, I, I guess, yes, it had it had not started to air, no, because I remember that I had to recut some of the shows uh, that were already in the can. What were some of the things that you immediately saw needed improving on the show? It was a problem in which Darren had his idea about what the show should be and what the format should be. Uh, I mean, it was a sort of thing like... Uh, I cut some characters, I approved some attitudes in other characters, but mainly I changed the the formula that Darren wanted so desperately to keep. And, and what he wanted was every episode to be this. People die, Kolchak smells foul play, he does some research, I kill the monster of the week, and then Vincenzo refuses to print the story. And having done so many other series, I knew that that just wasn't going to work. For instance, on Ironside, Ironside 
could could have a different concept and a different show every week. One thing remained constant. Ironside was the world's best detective. Uh, he saw things that other people missed. He missed nothing. But one week it would be a mystery. One week it would be an open kind of a mystery in which the audience saw what was happening before Ironside did. One week we would do a closed mystery in which the audience did not know what was happening and they found out what was happening when the characters, when the cops found out about it. One show would be a love story. Uh, so I just couldn't abide by the fact that Darren wanted to do a series that was going to be the same every single week and only the monster would change or the, or the clothing on the characters would change. And that was my, my major problem. Why do you think there was such a disconnect, too, about the, the tone of the show? Because it feels like there was an uneasy mix of comedy and horror. Yeah, well, uh, I, if you felt that, you felt that despite how, how hard I struggled uh, not to do that, I don't know whether I should even think about it as a disconnect, Mike. Here's what happens. The network wanted both. And by the way, you know, what, what my job basically was, was to stand there in the middle with both hands out and keep the studio off with one hand and keep the network off with the other hand. But what they wanted was horror and comedy. And I knew in my heart that that's not going to work. Uh, I think I learned from a show called Barbary Coast that comedy westerns just don't work. But humor in a thriller can work if done correctly. And that is what my toughest job was, was to get the networks to understand we were not doing sitcoms. We were not doing comedy. We were doing horror that had humor mixed into it. And the difference between comedy and humor is something that network execs don't want to learn. What was it like working with Simon Oakland? Oh, he was an angel. He was one of the good guys. Uh, he kept himself above the fray. And because he had to work with Darren every day, I allowed him to stay away from me uh, and vice versa. <laughs> And this was an early opportunity for David Chase. What was your relationship like with him? The relationship with him was like that of the showrunner with one of the rewrite men. Uh, he and a guy by the name of Rudy Borchard were on the scene when I got there. And they proved themselves to me very quickly. And they stayed until the very end. Uh, now, in an interview with someone, David referred to me as very droll. And we haven't run into each other in 30-odd years, so I never got a chance to ask him what he meant by that. But he was a, he, he was a great rewrite man, and uh, of course he, he did some originals too, but uh, mostly they were rewrites because I like to work with freelance writers and not have the scripts originate uh, 
in, in my office or in somebody else's office. And David would take a script home that I would tell him I didn't like, and I would tell him what the reasons were, and I would tell him what it is that I thought should be done. He'd go home on Friday with this bad script, and he would come in on Monday and put a new script on my desk and say, it's not very good, side, but it's the best. I can do under the circumstances and if you want me to take another run at it I'll do it and usually it was always very good why is it that you would prefer scripts to not originate in your office well because I think that there are and still are there were then and still are hundreds if not thousands of experienced expert screenwriters in our town, who are members of the screen, uh, the, the Writers Guild of America, who are capable of bringing in stories that no showrunner can think of by himself. And basically, I had one objection to, to showrunners who wrote everything that they put on the air. First of all, I don't think that they could be nearly as good. I mean, everybody wasn't uh, an Aaron Sorkin. Uh, but for the most part, we just shut out a whole creative community. And uh, I, I never did that. I had the guys bring us the stories, and then we let them write the first drafts and sometimes the final drafts. But very often, they just didn't understand what the overall arc of the series was. And what my job was, was to maintain the concept of the series as a constant. So I always had a staff like uh, Bill Gordon and Jim Doherty, like Rudy Borchardt, David Chase, who could take and make little pencil changes to what the other writers had done and keep it keep the show on track. That's that's what I had to do was keep it on track. Who were some of the people that you enjoyed working on with the show, uh, whether behind the camera or in front of the camera? There wasn't much that I enjoyed working with in front of the camera. Uh, and that's because Darren and I had this uh, don't ask, don't tell situation going on. Every time I, I would show up on the set to speak to the director or somebody else, uh, Darren would say, I got to go to the toilet. And uh, he would go to the toilet and he would stay there till somebody told him I left the set. So uh, there wasn't much interaction between myself and the people in front of the camera. But I think in some ways, the set designer and the DP, the director of photography, were the most important to the show, if you don't count the writers. If you watch any episode with a critical eye, I think you might agree with me that sometimes the set design was just as important as the silly monsters that we tried to create. Uh, I saw one the other day. I don't remember what the title of it was. I uh, I watched almost all the way through it, and it took place in a sewer. That sewer was very hard to shoot in. It was, uh, I don't know how we ever did it. I was in my office, um, but, but they shot in a sewer. And uh, that's the kind of stuff that I liked. As far as in front of the camera, 
One of the things that I think I'm most proud of is the the guest cast that we put together. Every comedian who ever was or ever will be was on that show. I mean, from Sil- Phil Silvers right down to... Uh, I don't know if Jack Carter was on the show. I don't think so. But Phil Silvers, uh, it was a great, a great cast that we put together of, um, of actors that came on every week. Is that where you met Eric Estrada? Eric did a show for me. Yes. Um, that is where I met Eric Estrada. Uh, but you know what? When I, when I came on to Chips, I had totally forgotten that I had ever had Eric Estrada in a show. I didn't know who he was. I didn't know anything about it. And it wasn't until years later that I saw uh, some company put out a CD with all of the, um, the Kolchak episodes on it. And it was then that I realized, yeah, I remember Eric. You've put together so many shows and so many episodes of great shows over the years, and I know that this is kind of an unfair question, but do you have any favorite episodes of some of the shows that you've worked on? I guess there's no real reason for it in terms of perceived quality, but my favorite show was Amy Prentice, and it was my favorite show because it was created by my wife, Francine, and so I liked that show uh, better than any other and we of course we did the the pilot for that show in off of Ironside and if I remember correctly I had Bill Shatner playing the uh, playing the heavy in it so I liked that episode uh, with regard to Kolchak I don't think I had a favorite episode uh, and especially since none of the special effects or, or makeup effects really worked for me. We just didn't have the money. We didn't have the time. Uh, I tried to do things that were a little hard to do. We didn't have blue screen at that time or green screen, which is what it became before it became blue screen. But I did like some moments like uh, the burning of the cross on the hill and... Uh, and an actress by the name of Ann Whitfield, who who played an unlikely hooker uh, that Kolchak holds a cross up at in order to protect himself from her. Um, that one, that was a moment on Kolchak that I liked, despite all the problems that Darren gave me and that I'm sure he perceived I gave him. Darren McGavin was a great Kolchak. I mean, he just was Kolchak. I can't conceive of anybody else ever playing that part. Um, so he gave a lot of moments, as did, by the way, his his double, who walks like him, hunched over like him, and if Darren wanted to be in the toilet for a while, then his double would walk away from camera, and it looked like Darren. But Darren McGavin was a great actor. So many of the shows that you've worked on have been, let's say, resurrected to maybe varying degrees of success over the years. Do you even bother to see like the TV movie of the Virginian or the Chips movie or Ironsides or Kolchak when they brought those back? Well, when you say Kolchak, I, I don't recall them ever, ever bringing that back except 
the ones that I shot, did they did they do a Kolchak uh, movie that I don't remember? Back in 2005, there was a series called The Night Stalker with another Kolchak. Oh, my God, yes. I remember that, but I never saw an episode. Now, listen, Mike, I don't know what you might think of this, and I don't know what your listeners and viewers might think of me, but I never saw one episode of the last season of Chips or of Ironside or for that matter, the new doctors. When I was through with the show, or vice versa, I went cold turkey. And as far as the reimagining, Mike, I never met the gentleman, but when someone like Dax Shepard plays with a concept that I took years developing and maturing, I feel a little bit like the father who's holding his newborn daughter Even as he holds her on his chest that first day out of the hospital, he knows in his heart that someday she's going to be growing up and she's going to have some kind of sex. He just going to be around to see it. How did you come to decide to write Showrunner? People kept asking me what the hell it was. I did on these shows. I mean, people just don't know what an executive producer does or or failing an executive producer, what a producer does if he's the guy who does it. And and one of the reasons for that, I believe, is the proliferation of executive producer and a producer credits that give rise to the, the need for a showrunner to identify himself among the crowds of producers who had no idea what a producer was supposed to do. Uh, actually, I think I cover that pretty thoroughly in the book, but the bottom line answer is with multiple, multiple companies now financing motion pictures and probably doing the same thing with television. Everybody who's an executive of one of those companies that put a couple of million dollars into a project becomes either an executive producer or a co-executive producer or a producer or a co-producer, and none of them do anything. So what was it that I was doing while I was a producer? I thought I had to explain that I was running the show. You know, when I was coming up, people would talk about Aaron Sorkin, Aaron Spelling, uh, Stephen Bochco, and it wasn't until about a decade ago that I even heard the term showrunner. Was I just being dense about that, or did it kind of come into the popular parlance with people like Brian Fuller and Vince Gilligan, Shonda Rhimes? Because honestly, I'd never heard that term, Then now I can't go a day without hearing the term. I think I think that you have it. It was about 10 years ago, and I think that what happened is people who were working, as I was not, um, just got tired of having five, six, or seven other people perceivably taking the credit, presumably, for what they did. Now, of course, the networks know who does what, 
So even though the credits may show a half a dozen executive producers and a half a dozen producers and co-producers and associate producers and assistant producers, the, the networks know who is making the show, who's making the decisions, who is running everything. Uh, so it's not for them. But it's for the guys who see all these credits. And tell me, the, 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 the honest truth, when you see a movie and it doesn't get started for about three or four minutes because there are five companies that had a little piece of it, and then there are at least seven and maybe even ten executive producers or producers or co-producers, that's all about so that's basically why I wrote the book. You read the book, and what, you know when when I want to get sarcastic, and somebody says, "What does a producer really do?" I say, "Nothing that he can't get somebody else to do for him, or if he's really if he's really a working producer, then he does it all." I really appreciate the way that you speak to the reader and the way that you're taking the reader through the process, you know, this kind of, so you want to be a showrunner really works well as a concept for the book. I'm so glad I'm, I, I'm going to take that as a compliment and not have to bother asking you how you liked it because you've already told me. Yes, it is fantastic. And I really appreciate uh, the work that you've done. Well, the work that you've done over the years and then the work that you did on this book. So Thank you so much. This has been a real pleasure talking with you. Well, Mike, I'm, I'm glad that we, we finally did it and uh, that we got together. And now I have to get onto my computer and go back through all of those reams of emails and see if I can remember what we said to each other. back and we were talking about the vampire the fourth episode of kolchak aka the night stalker aka kolchak the night stalker and yeah i i would say that this is a pretty solid episode i don't know if i watch this back to back with the night stalker how it would feel but i think it's good that there's some space between the night stalker and this one i would say that this is perfectly fine to watch him back to back I mean, there it is kind of one long story, right? Yeah, it kind of feels that way. This episode works better than a lot of the standalones have, primarily, for me at least, because, the again, the villain, I think, in this episode works a lot better than some of the other villains have. But then again, I haven't really liked the villain, the villains in a lot of the other episodes anyways. Not the invisible space aliens or anything? Oh, dear God. <laughs> I mean, again, it's nice to see them actually showing the monsters. Right. Right? Because we've really had this kind of lack of the monsters actually being, like, fleshed out. Right, right. I mean, the Ripper, I mean, Jack the Ripper, to me, the, I, I know people are going to plots over this, but to me, the gold standard kind of is David Warner in um, Time After Time. I mean, he's 
he's so evil and smart and just really does a good job in that. And I trying to remember if the Ripper even says anything in that episode of Kolchak. So obviously the zombie doesn't say anything. And obviously the invisible space alien doesn't say anything so far. I don't think we've really had too many talkers other than uh, Richard Anderson in the night strangler. And yeah. And Richard Anderson is not given a whole lot to do anyways, because he only talks right there at the end. Exactly. Yeah. And I don't even think like for most of the episode, he even knew that Carl was after him. I mean, scores and a knew that Carl was after him at, at least after that, like hospital scene. So, and Carl was there for many of these attacks. I mean, and even in this episode, he's there for at least, you know, the final thing where he dispatches of the vampire, but he's also there witnessing one of the attacks so you know he's he's got some some ties to it as opposed to like the uh the alien from the last one where he's just really nowhere to be seen or the alien (laughs) not even talking about the alien but carl is not around when the alien attacks are happening he's almost always there afterwards other than those again cops flying through the air with the uh, uh the robbery but it's like, yeah, he can't see anything, and the alien has no idea who he is, what he is, that he's that people even exist, really, other than food. Yeah, I I'm glad that in this episode of the show we also have <laughs> Kolshak murdering yet another vampire, which I thought was pretty funny that he kills another vampire. Right? I mean, I just think it's hilarious because I mean that's. One of my favorite things about the first episode of this show is that Kolchak straight up murders someone, right? Oh, yeah. And then he straight up murders someone again in this episode. And I didn't even realize he killed her. It was like, and now she's dead. And he was like, the coroner's report came back. And I was like, wait, what? Yeah, that was a little confusing to me as well. Like, how did how how did he kill her? I guess she was... Now, there's the big fire going on. He lights the cross, which is a pretty great visual image. But, yeah, I don't know. It sounded like she was in the house somehow. I mean, yeah, that was a little confusing. Yeah, I didn't understand how she died. I thought that she just got, like, captured, I guess. Right. So, I have no idea. I couldn't tell you. Again, like I said, I was completely surprised when they were like, the coroner's report came back. I was like, I didn't even realize she died. Yeah, and I've watched this one multiple times now because... This is, uh, you know, it stands up. Yeah, this is this really is one of the better episodes of the show that we've seen up until this point. So, as, at least as far as I'm concerned, it's one of the better episodes. Again, it kind of checks all the boxes for me, which is, you know, good villain. A villain that we actually get to see. Some interesting backstory to the villain. Cole Shack actually, like, being part of the conclusion of the episode... Which we hadn't we hadn't had in the last couple episodes. Well, at least the last episode, the alien one, he wasn't really. I mean, he was, but the way that that episode ends, like I still am having a hard time removing my feelings about the alien being invisible from everything else. Well, yeah, and he doesn't really stop the alien. He just watches the alien leave. Yeah, yeah. There was no stopping the the predator in that episode. Well, you got to have predator too when it comes back for Kolchak's head. So, Chris, what is going on over at the Culture Cast? Well, right now we are finishing up Schwarzenegger September, uh, talking about some, I would say, some lesser known films, some films that maybe have gotten kind of overlooked. Junior is one of them. Uh, Wow. 
You are yeah. digging deep. <laughs> digging deep. Digging deep on some of that junior life. Uh, we are wrapping up Schwarzenegger September. So uh, you can follow me over on Twitter at Culture Stash. And you can also follow the website at Culture Shocked. And we're on iTunes, uh, The Culture Cast. So check us out. Uh, what, what's going on with you over at the projection booth, Mr. White? Well, we are just wrapping up Czech Timber, where we're talking about four films from the Czech New Wave. Also, coincidentally enough, uh, we just dropped an episode about The Running Man. So I guess Schwarzenegger September is big everywhere, not just at the Culture Cast. Yeah, good old Richard Bachman, dude. Oh, that's true. I guess it was a Bachman book, not a Stephen yeah. King book. So, right. my, my bad. Yeah, right. So, you can follow me over at Pro Boothcast or Pro Boothcus, as some people pronounce it, over on Twitter, or come on over to the website, projection boot.com. And as always, you can find out more about this episode of the Colchak Tapes over at colchaktapes.com. If you want to leave us some feedback at that site, that would be great. If you want to leave us a review on iTunes, that would be even better. The more reviews we get, the closer we get to being in that, what is it, Chris, the new and noteworthy section? Mm-hmm, top 50. That's right. And if we break the top 50, we're going to have a special surprise. Well, it's not a surprise. We talked about it in the last episode where we are going to go to Chicago and do a live Kolchak episode it's true i made the challenge if you guys deliver we'll be there i'll do the road trip why not yeah let's do it sure let's go get some hot dogs and chocolate in chicago (laughs) we're with the ins (laughs) which apparently is like the fbi that some people think well i think she thought it was the irs yeah something because that was actually a thing back then uh the whole idea of like these uh, Maharashis, these uh, yogi-type people. I mean, if you're a fan of the Beatles, you'll know that they kind of were under the sway of you know a yogi. And then uh, I'm trying to remember, like, well, Reverend Sun uh, Moon. What was it? Sun... I can't remember the guy's name. I'm totally this blanking. before my time. Yeah, well, it was, you know... It, The 60s were a very turbulent time. The 70s were very much a time of introspection and spirituality. So people were getting into things like Est and, um, you know, Orgone and all this kind of stuff. So a lot of people were looking to Eastern religions. And so we had people coming over here and some of them were hucksters. So this whole idea of Carl being from the IRS and investigating this guy uh, and setting off the one woman. It was kind of a topical joke in 1974. So imagine that. I'm imagining it because I completely missed it. <laughs> yeah. So there's your civics lesson for today. There it is. Yep. So yeah, come over to colchaktapes.com, leave us some feedback, go on over to iTunes, leave us a review, or any place that you happen to get the podcast. It would be always great to get some feedback. We've got a Facebook group. I want to thank John Walker for coming up with the theme to the Kolchak tapes. Other music heard in this episode, of course, Jill Malay's fantastic score. So can never say enough about that opening to the Night Stalker and that amazing theme. And we will be back next month talking about The Werewolf, another original Kolchak episode. Going back to our good friend Alan Barron, one of the directors of that episode, and uh, surprisingly enough, Paul Playden, though he's out as producer, this is one of his scripts, he and David Chase. So we'll talk all about that next month on the Kolchak Tapes. 
They booked me for murder, just like I thought they would. But then, after 12 hours, they let me go. They never did say why. But as I was sitting in Lieutenant Mateo's office, waiting for execution, I happened to see a coroner's report on Catherine Rollins. I quote the coroner. The tissue structure of the individual appeared to be that of a female, species human, who had been dead at least three years. This is a medical conundrum for which I have no explanation. Three years. 